what is the future of the religious right in the United States? It's a question that we've danced around on a number of aspects in this podcast in the past. Today, I want to address one of the most ticklish challenges facing social conservatives moving forward, immigration. The challenge is ticklish for a number of reasons. First, the most advantageous policy on immigration from a social conservative perspective is not necessarily currently supported by the base of voters that currently vote in a socially conservative direction. Second, on immigration, policy challenges are often conflated in ways that are unhelpful and potentially contradictory from a socially conservative perspective. Third, concern trolling on the issue of immigration has wanted to demonize certain positions held by social conservative-based voters as ipso facto racism. Immigration policy and people's perceptions of it is actually a very complex and dynamic issue. So in this episode of Blind Politics, we will break down the various different issues that drive people's perceptions on immigration, different facets of the immigration issue, and how a social conservative policy might both address the actual underlying concerns of base voters and point the future of a movement in terms of social conservatism that could broaden the coalition and actually create a permanent social conservative majority in the United States. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another policy-heavy episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte, and also on Facebook and Instagram through the Robertson School of Government's feed. What prompted this podcast is a recent article in a news uh, service called The Dispatch, and is written by David French. David French, of course, is a, a somewhat controversial author in, in some conservative circles. He toyed briefly with running against President Trump in 2016, opted not to, kind of fell into so, somewhere between the never Trump and, and uh, calling balls and strikes camp during the Trump administration, but has subsequently been one of the voices uh, calling for a detailed examination of how evangelicals got to, to where they are with respect to Trump and Trumpism. Now, at the outset, I think we need to acknowledge that such an evaluation is necessary. There have been undeniable excesses in terms of the veneration of Donald Trump among evangelicals. You cannot have statue, golden statues of presidents as an evangelical that you are taking pictures with and smiling with and, you know, making acts of veneration toward and all these types of things, okay? We don't need prayer candles for politicians, all right? Particularly as evangelicals, right? If you're Eastern Orthodox, you know, Eastern Orthodox sometimes have had icons of the czar. This isn't something that we do, okay? As Protestants of any kind. And certainly not something that evangelicals do. Okay, so it's gotten out of hand. That's, that's undeniable. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of French's conclusions about why it's gotten out of hand, and we'll break into some of that today. But 
it has gotten out of hand in, in, in many ways. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm saying that everybody needs to stop supporting Trump and, and moving forward and all this kind of stuff. But I, and I need to get this off my chest before we get into the immigration issue, just briefly. Okay? Politics is a business. Your relationships with politicians are transactional. Okay? When you're voting for somebody, you don't need to have them over for dinner and have a candlelight romantic interlude and gaze lovingly into their eyes. You are hiring them as a temporary contract worker to do a job. It is a transactional relationship. If, you, if they don't do some aspect of the job in a way that you like, you don't have to support them. Okay? Politics isn't a team sport. Right? It's not like if you acknowledge that you don't like something about a politician, you're letting the team down. And we shouldn't treat it as a team sport, particularly as Christians. All right? As Christians, we are on Team Jesus. We are not on Team Republican or Team Democrat. We are on Team Jesus. And when Democrats or Republicans do something that is not on Team Jesus, we can call them out for it. Okay? So we need to stop, as Christians, pretending that politicians are the Messiah, that they are the second coming of God, that they are Jesus Christ incarnate, that they are perfect and that it's wrong to criticize them. It's wrong to not criticize politicians, in fact. As Christians, we have a moral responsibility to tell them when they're doing things that are wrong. And that goes double for American citizens, right? If you're not complaining about your member of Congress at least once a week, you're doing it wrong. Because I can guarantee you they're doing something at least once a week that you don't approve of and that you don't support. And our job as American citizens is to bother our politicians and nag them to do things that we want. Now, there's going to be some contradictory stuff in that. But part of the job of citizenship is to question and challenge and object to things that politicians are doing. And this goes double for Christians because the temptations of power are real and nobody gets a free pass. Okay? So this is a frustration, a continuous frustration for me. It's not a Democrat or Republican issue, right? You have the same problem with Obama. Everybody wanted to give Obama a pass on things that he did that were not on Team Jesus. And then everybody wanted to give Trump, on the other side, wanted to give Trump a pass. We don't give passes to politicians as Christians. This is not a thing that we should do. I don't care how much you like the politician. Stop and, and read the letter of Theodosius, the, uh, the, the letter of Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, to Theodosius, who's an emperor of Rome at the time, who was one of Ambrose's personal friends, who had essentially saved Orthodox Christianity from some serious heresies. Right? He did more for Christianity than any American president in the history of the country, and pretty much any modern politician ever. Okay, But he did something that was not on Team Jesus. He massacred prisoners at Thessalonica. And Ambrose is basically like, sorry, you need to do penance, otherwise I'm not going to receive you into the church. Okay, That's somebody who is a personal friend of his. If we are not holding our politicians in a democratic society to the same state that late antique bishops held Roman emperors, we are doing it wrong. And rent. Now back to policy. Okay, so something's gone wrong. But I think sometimes with folks like David French, you get a little bit, and I've, I've seen this tendency among other folks too, who start out on the, on the religious right, and they realize something's wrong. Okay, and then they immediately start defaulting to the explanations of the left for what is wrong. So French has been kind of leaning into this idea that what is motivating evangelicals to a large part in some of these issues is uh, racial animus, particularly among white evangelicals. Evidence he cites for this is the fact that evangelicals are out of step um, to the racially, to the, to the more sort of conservative or, or some would say reactionary position with the rest of the population, white evangelicals, and that evangelicals in some polls have described immigration as more important to their support of, of President Trump than abortion. Okay, first of all, anybody who thinks that immigration is more important than abortion has their priorities completely wrong, completely backwards. 
One is a policy issue, the other is the murder of unborn human beings. There's no contest in the importance of those issues if you're actually socially conservative or Christian of any kind. We also need to acknowledge the fact that Protestant Christians up until the mid-1970s, up to and including the Southern Baptist Convention, were supportive of abortion. Okay, so it's, it's a Johnny-come-lately issue for a lot of evangelicals, and if you look back at the history of it, right, as Protestants, the reputation, the, the, we don't have as much reputational capital for being pro-life as we think we do. So, like, if you're Catholic, pat yourself on the back, because that doesn't apply to you, because the Roman Catholic Church has been against abortion pretty consistently for 2,000 years, but a lot of American Protestant churches leaned into it. By the way, white churches and black churches alike, it's a problem. And there's, there's a, a plank that needs to be taken of our, out of our own eye historically on that issue. By the way, that goes for eugenics as well. That being said, there's no contest about the importance of that issue. However, I think we're missing some context here. But let me, before I go into the context we're missing, let me explain the importance of this. So French, in, in his recent article, writes about the fact that from a socially conservative perspective, social conservatives should support two issues Republicans generally don't. One is increased legal immigration. And two is child subsidies, right? Particularly child subsidies within, within the welfare system as, composed, as compared with things like work requirements. The, the argument's very technical. I recommend if you can find a, a free version of his article on the dispatch, you read the whole thing because I don't want to get into all of it. I think he's basically correct in terms of the policies that he's advocating that social conservatives should support. I think the, the evidence for both is, is compelling. In particular, the evidence that legal immigration tends to strengthen families because of the culture change. Legal immigrants that are coming here tend, on average, to be more pro-family and to, to both believe in and practice behaviors that encourage strong, stable families more than native-born Americans. So the idea that immigration, legal immigration, is leading to family breakdown is just false. And I would also point out that a lot of immigration restrictionism on the right is funded by people that we, as social conservatives, like should not like. I can tell you that many of the legal immigration think tanks are funded by people that are also zero population growth environmentalists. All right, so you need to look into the money and where the money is coming from on some of these issues. Now, some of the open borders think tanks are also funded by people that we don't like. And I'm not pro-open borders either. I think that the, the, the Chambers of Commerce open borders position isn't pro-family either because it's primarily regarding immigrants as people that are coming in to, to work in you know, low-skilled, low low-wage jobs that, that aren't necessarily always you know, the, the best type of jobs, rather than looking at immigration from a U.S. interest and policies perspective. Okay, But I think from that social conservative perspective, legal immigration of families, even if they come in poor, immigrants tend to be both more entrepreneurial and more pro-family on average than native-borns in any society. And that's not just, by the way, not just in America. The, the data internationally supports this as well. And the reason for that is like getting up and leaving your home and moving to another country is an entrepreneurial act, point one. And point two, most of these folks are coming from more traditional societies where the idea of family is paramount. Okay, so it's just, it's, it's, an, it's statistically verifiable. It's common sense if you study the issue even a little bit. And it's, it's one of the things that actually has built America over time, right? So we talk about America as a nation of immigrants. What, what that means is we're a nation of people who are both in traditional stable families and entrepreneurial enough to get up, pick up sticks and move here. And so those two elements of uh, liberty you know, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurialism and personal liberty and also, you know, traditional family values, because we are a nation of immigrants and because of sort of the nature of that immigration, 
have been integral to the American story. So there's a mutually reinforcing aspect here. I want to leave the child subsidy issue aside. It's very technical, and I think it is it is a good discussion to have, but I'm also not quite up on some of the interplays of the economic issues. But immigration is an issue I've spent a lot more time studying. So French, what's French's, and, and then French, you know, pivots again with the concern trolling thing about, well, you know, white evangelicals don't support immigration. Okay, this is where I have some concerns with the methodology. Okay, so point number one that French makes is that white evangelicals tend to be more conservative on racial issues than uh, their counterparts in uh, all other demographic groups, and this makes them an outlier on the issue. Uh, to a certain extent, that's true, but what he's not looking at is polling from places like More in Common that says that white progressives are far more woke statistically than any other group. White progressives, according to More in Common polling, and More in Common is not a conservative outlet. They're, they're pretty centrist. They've got folks on the left and the right. Their polling indicates that white progressives are 20% or more more likely to say that systemic racism is an absolute barrier to success for minorities than black Americans, Hispanic Americans, or other minorities. They are... So what, we, what you're looking at here is not, oh my gosh, those, those white conservative evangelicals, they're such an outlier. What you're looking at is that on racial issues, white people are the most extreme on either end, and minorities are the closest to the middle. And that's just, that's just what the polling indicates. It doesn't make sense, but it's what the polling indicates. You, normally, that would not be the case. This is a new trend. But actually, the group that has moved the most is white Democrats, white progressives, white, white, white folks on the left. Right? So it's not that evangelical attitudes have changed, it's that it used to be that white Democrats were more moderate and that black Democrats were the outlier on this issue. It's now white folks on the left have not, or white Democrats as a, as a statistical category. Now these are not the same white people, right? so it's different groups, but they have moved as a statistical category from being the median position to being on the left flank, which puts evangelicals uh, white evangelicals out of step with everybody else, true, uh, but not necessarily because their position has moved, per se, but rather because of this dramatic shift among white progressives. What that means is that, that racial minorities are the median position on race at this point. And that is interesting for a number of reasons, because the, what the polling that I see is that what they're looking for is, yes, they're looking for more racial justice. They're looking for concrete solutions to real systemic problems in their communities, but they're not necessarily looking for the same level of wokeness. They're not big fans of political correctness. They're not necessarily willing to go to some of the extremes on systemic racism. They have a more balanced and nuanced view, actually, than white progressives. So who's the outlier? Is it white evangelicals? Is it white progressives? Or is it just white people in general that tend to want to see racial issues in categorical ways, whereas racial minorities who actually have experience of systemic racism actually have a more nuanced view? as it tends to be the difference between someone who's looking at an, a bright, shiny ideal, the bright, shiny ideal of colorblindness or the bright, shiny ideal of anti-racism, but isn't actually having to experience racism from the bottom, right? So the more you actually have to experience something practically in your daily life, the more you're actually going to have a complex and nuanced view. So I said it doesn't make sense. It actually does make sense if you, if you kind of break it down from that perspective of white voters on this issue are engaging with ideals. And minority voters tend to be engaging based on the practical realities day to day that they're facing. So it makes sense that they would be the median voter because they're having practical concerns and they're looking for practical solutions. Okay, so that's my point on race. It's not that either group is necessarily racist or not racist. 
It's that to steal a phrase from the left, they have the privilege of viewing this through an ideal lens, rather than having to deal with it as something that practically they have to encounter on a daily basis in their daily lives, which requires you to have a more nuanced view. And so, you know, my, I'll, I'll interject a personal anecdote here. As somebody who is a minority, uh, granted a much more tiny minority that has very different complexities, I can tell you that that's true. You, you definitely do experience a, a very complex way of interacting with a majority society because they just don't understand your experience. They have no understanding of your experience whatsoever. And so they tend to view it through idealistic lenses. Um, either, you know, um, you know for, for me, oftentimes it's, it's the personal experience of, you know, I'm amazed that you can get up and do anything in, in the day. You know, you, you're, you're blind, so you can't do that. Or also, you know, uh, you're, you're blind, so you must have the special insight of, of not caring about physical appearance, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and the reality is a lot more complex and a lot more nuanced than that. And, you know, your experience of sighted society is a lot more nuanced than that if you're blind, because you just, it has to be like you're encountering it on a regular basis. So you have to deal with the complexities in ways that a more idealized portion, uh, you know, a more idealized perception of disability, you might not. Right. So it's just, it's a different, it's a different lens. And so um, there's become an ideologically polarized discourse about race as a result of which white people who are already ideologically polarized and who are not experiencing it in quite the same way directly are shock becoming the partisan outliers on this issue. That's a fascinating discussion, but it doesn't necessarily illumine, it doesn't say as much about social conservatives in general or white evangelicals in general as it does about our, our politics more broadly. So let's pivot now to the topic of immigration. So it's undeniable that evangelicals are, are some of the most, uh, white evangelicals are some of the most intense immigration restrictionists in terms of policy preferences right now. What's driving that? Well, if you look at immigration policy preferences in a comparative perspective, so across countries, uh, particularly across Western industrialized countries, which tend to be migrant receiving countries, okay? So if you're looking at migration as a policy issue, there's three types of countries. There, there are sending countries, so countries people are out migrating from, pass-through countries, countries that they're, they're going through on their chain, and then receiving countries. And those are the countries that they, they want to end up in, right? So in receiving countries, attitudes toward immigration are affected by two aspects. One, economic issues, right? So when there's the economic downturn, even if levels of immigration drop, attitudes against immigration harden, okay? We know that from very recent history because immigration levels actually dropped post-financial crisis, but attitudes about immigration hardened in a negative way. The other thing is, frankly, if you have an actual immigration crisis, right, we can see that in Europe. There is a, a serious refugee crisis that happens in the result of the Syrian civil war and uh, uh, aspects associated with that as a result of which attitudes harden. So what does this mean from a policy perspective? Well, why would evangelical attitudes have hardened on immigration over the past 10 years or so? 2000, let's, let's go back a little bit further. Let's go back almost 15 years. So 13 years, 2008, what do you have? You have the financial crisis, right? People losing their jobs, people are losing their houses. We know historically this leads to a hardening of immigration attitudes. Second, we have perception of migrant crises, you know, you, and, and you have real increased flows of migration at the border. You have, you know, the, everything associated with uh, family separation, etc. By the way, family separation is, is one of the things that French points out that says that evangelicals are, are, you know, sort of horribly populist immigration restrictions on this issue. But we have to keep in mind that that's not, that's not a legal immigration issue. That is a controlling illegal immigration issue. And I'll come back to the di distinction in a second. 
So this perception hardens attitudes about immigration generally. Okay, One of the challenges that, that comes up as a result of this is that most people in their heads don't disaggregate legal and illegal immigration, particularly when their attitudes about immigration are hardening. Okay, And from a policy perspective, legal and illegal immigration are different, extremely different. Okay, Illegal immigration is bad. It is, bad. It is a bad thing from a policy perspective. It's not in the national interest. Nations need to control their borders because they need to have an immigration policy that is in the national interest, right? So whether you want to say that that immigration policy is high or low legal immigration, it needs to be something that we can determine what the national interest is and base our immigration policy on that. And if you don't control your borders, you can't even have that conversation about what the immigration policies need to be, right? So illegal immigration generally is bad from a national interest perspective. Because it means that you don't have control, so you can't actually set policy based on what is or is not in the national interest. Okay, Some people say, well, it's a pure market function. But there are national interests that go beyond market functions. This is where I pivot back to the child policy perspective. Children, I would say, are a net good in and of themselves. Right? Stipulated. Even if they're economically uh, deleterious for, in the short run, uh, in the long run, it's, it's a very good thing. But free markets aren't necessarily always the best at allocating long-term resources. They're very good at the short term, but unless you have people that have certain virtues like future regarding behavior and self-discipline, you can't necessarily assume that markets are always going to properly allocate resources in the long term. So there's an argument prudentially that can be made for subsidizing the uh, you know children, if it actually works, if natalist policies actually work, because children are a long-term good, and because people that don't have certain virtues in society won't create the proper incentives to necessarily promote or, or uh, foster that long-term good. I also think that having kids makes you more economically responsible. And this might be because I've become more economically responsible since having children. It might be my own personal experience of like, when you have a kid, you got to go out, you got to get a job, you got to live on a tight budget because you got more mouths to feed. Like it imposes a certain amount of economic discipline on you and, and financial discipline. And I think you know, a government child subsidy would, would not change that behavior because it's, it's just a natural aspect of parenting. He's like, you have to do that if you're going to be a good parent. Anyway, so that's a little bit of a, a, a side note. So but what that says is that there are some issues, right, that markets cannot determine. Markets can determine most things, but there are some issues of national interest and long-term term things that markets can't determine. This is why we have government in the first place. And one of those issues is what immigration policy should be. Right? So illegal immigration is not, bad, is not good. It's bad. Legal immigration may be good or may be bad. Depends on national interest. Right? So we have to disaggregate those two issues. That's, that's point number one. Now, because of these crises, both the financial crisis, which was not an immigration crisis, but whether it, it, it leads to higher levels of immigration or not, those tend to lead to harder attitudes about it. And secondarily, because of the migrant crises at our border, and also people read the news from Europe. People see what's happening in Europe, and they see the, the, the effect of that, and that does shape perceptions. These things, I would argue, are a much better explanation of evangelical attitudes over the last 10 years, because if you look at polling before 2006, evangelicals are probably the least restrictionist element of the base. There's no correlation before that between support for uh, socially conservative positions and, and support for immigration restrictionism. That's not to say that all social conservatives are pro-immigration before that, but it is a much wider spectrum of opinion pre-2008. 
and attitudes harden post-2008. Okay, so the, the main thing is that immigration attitudes are rarely static. You're going to have some people whose attitudes are firmly pro-immigration and some that are firmly anti-immigration in general. But for most people, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dynamic policy. But consistently, consistently, majorities have supported increased border security and enforcement and a guest worker program at the same time. Okay, this goes back to the, the family separation. Family separation policy, whether you like it or not, was sold to the voters by the Trump administration as a, a border policy, as a border policy that was going to help control illegal immigration and deter illegal immigration. And people don't like illegal immigration. Illegal immigration is bad. Okay, so we can argue that the policies were, if you want to, to argue that it's not a humane policy, you can make that argument. Although you better also be prepared to come up with a, a better way of doing it because it's, it, there's, there's got to be some way of processing folks at the border, right? So I'm not necessarily saying people are wrong that this is not the, the way to handle it. I'm saying you need to propose a better solution that actually will work. So that's point number one, okay? Point number two, don't assume that support for that policy tracks with opposition to legal immigration. Because polling and public discussion doesn't disaggregate. But in private opinions, I, I have found in, in working this issue and studying this issue for a while that people do tend to disaggregate in ways that aren't always reflected in, in the polling. Okay, so consensus is people want really, really strict border security, but they also want a guest worker program. They're fine with people coming here working, they just don't want them to come illegally. And they want us to know who's here and know when they're here and know when they're leaving. None of those things to me sound racist or unreasonable. <laughs> Right? Countries need to know who's coming in, how long they're staying, when they're planning on leaving, whether they want to work or apply for citizenship. These are good things for us to know about people that are coming into the country. It's, it's not, to me, it's not unreasonable at all. Now, can you combine those policies? Yeah, absolutely. If you listen to this podcast, you know that this, essentially, this policy mix is what happened during the Eisenhower administration. Until you had the canceling of the guest worker program by Johnson and the Family Reunification Act that changed immigration policies by Kennedy. The policy was guest worker program and tough border enforcement. And what happened? Net zero illegal uh, immigration within a decade. So not only does, is this policy mixed popular, it would actually work to resolve the illegal immigration issue, right? You combine those two things, tough border security on the one hand, and then an opportunity for people in, in, to come into free market system and, and work and as I mentioned previously, you can make employers responsible for seeing the, for, for paying the freight to people, uh, paying people's freight to get home. And also you hold employers legally responsible if their guest workers don't go home. And, you know, that's that's an added cost that's added to these businesses. But again, governments get to impose costs uh, on things that that are matters of national interest. And frankly, it's it's a minor enough cost for most businesses, including ag businesses. It's not that expensive to, to, you know, have to pay for a bus ticket or a plane ticket. And I'm fine with us actually subsidizing that to a certain extent, you know, providing a, or, or providing a tax credit, right? So if companies are, are paying freight of their, of their guest workers who are here legally to go home, you can write it off on your, on your taxes as a business expense, but you have to do it. You know, I think that there's, there's ways to, to do that. I also talked about global skills initiative in, in pass-through and or uh, sending countries, right? So there, there's a number of policy things that we can do in that respect. If we fix the illegal immigration system, 
All evidence from other countries that have implemented this indicates that support for legal immigration increases when you address illegal immigration. And this goes back to that disaggregation factor. So if your goal is, how do we get evangelicals to support legal and higher legal immigration rates, which would be good for them as social conservatives, and by the way, would also be good for the country because highly skilled entrepreneurial immigrants that, that come and bring stable families with them are going to be really good for us in terms of not going bankrupt due to entitlements. I mean, if you bring a bunch of people in, you're competitive in, in with other Western countries that are also going to be trying to bring them in, but you're an attractive sending destination for legal immigrants that want to come, start a business, raise a family, and have a bunch of kids. That probably adds to your tax base, um, helps to stabilize the, the cramp family crisis, and it's basically a, a win-win situation. So, you know, from that perspective, it's, it's a net family positive. I think high levels of legal immigration are a net positive, personally, just, just looking at the evidence on it. There's cultural, are there cultural issues that come up with that? Yeah, sure. But I also don't have a problem with making people learn English to come here. You know, some, some basic aspects of assimilation. By the way, you know who else doesn't have a problem with requirements that immigrants learn English? Immigrants. Can't tell you how often when I worked on minority outreach in the Bush campaign in 2004, we had people who were Spanish language speakers saying they, they stuck my kids in bilingual education. I don't want them in bilingual education. I want them to learn English. I can teach them Spanish at home. They need to learn English in school. What's the matter with these people? Of course, they're saying it in Spanish. So I'm having people translate it for me. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Um, you know, I, I've had stories like that. And polling indicates the same. Bilingual education is not popular among the parents of those bilingually educated because they want to teach their native language at home. And they want the kids to learn English at school because they want their kids to advance economically and they see learning English and being very English proficient is a good way of doing that. So assimilation is something that if you come to a country and you decide, I'm gonna move my family here, you're naturally predisposed to assimilate to a certain extent. And so they're not gonna necessarily be opposed to those requirements. The people that don't wanna do it are the school districts, frankly, for example, who get more money if they put people in bilingual education. It's a, it's a cash cow for them. The parents don't want it. It's not necessarily in the national interest. But, you know, you've got, you've got a pass-through there in the, in the school district where they get more money if they do it. So there's a lot of ways in which this issue could be solved. And even some of the cultural concerns that folks have could be alleviated. Here's the problem. That policy mix that I suggested is not catnip to the left or the right. The left would hate the border enforcement, and the right, which is, which is really leaning into the populist restrictionist discourse right now, would hate the guest worker program. Right? So it's a, it's a policy that's popular with the vast majority of the middle of the country. I think it would be popular enough with evangelicals because they want, they want you know, they, they're sensitive to the, to the um, illegal immigration concerns. But just being honest, there, there is no group in America that has done more to support refugees that have, have come from crisis areas in this country than Christians. You know, Midland, Texas was a mecca for Sudanese refugees. You know, uh, Lutherans, often very conservative Lutherans, settled refugees all across the upper Midwest. It's something that is in the DNA of evangelical churches. Th these are not people who are naturally and historically opposed to immigrants coming into the country, right? What they're opposed to is un uncontrolled illegal immigration. That's what the polling actually indicates if you break it down and you look at over time and you look at it comparatively with other countries, right? So the problem is that we actually have a policy that would work and it would be broadly popular, but there's, and we go back to the issue that I discussed of, of polarization among politically active white voters, 
where this has been, again, another polarized issue. So if you want to move evangelicals to a position that's actually more pro-family in terms of legal immigration, you have to fix the illegal side first. There's a sequencing issue. And the sequencing really needs to start with border security. It's, it's just an undeniable reality. Because people are not going to trust you to do the other things that need to be done until you have shown that you actually are taking issues on the border and issues of who's coming in seriously. And if there's serious substantive commitment to fixing what's wrong on the, on the border, right, even if it means deterrent measures that make people uncomfortable, that opens the door for a, a, a policy on immigration that is humane, that is pro-family, that is in the national interest. But you cannot do it unless you show serious and substantive security measures on the border. And that is what evangelicals want to see on immigration. And that is why they have leaned hard into that issue. And that is why they supported the Trump administration on that issue. Right? By the way, Trump promised a guest worker program after he built the wall. People forget about that. The big, beautiful wall was going to have a big, beautiful door that people could come back in through. And Ted Cruz even said, you know, Trump is not really a restrictionist. By the way, Cruz is correct. <laughs> right? So Trump, ironically enough, this, is, this was his policy. It just never got to the, the second part portion because they played, you know, they played silly beggars with the wall um, for one thing. They waited until the Democrats had a majority and then pushed for it, which, you know, calls into question how serious they were about it in the first place. But that's a whole different issue. You know, if you won't if you won't do something when you have a majority in Congress that would support it and then all of a sudden you want to push the issue when you don't. How seriously are you really taking it? It does raise the question. Just saying. All right, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. I think that, in conclusion, yes, we need to look at what went wrong with, with evangelicals and the populist right, and there, there is a disconnect between some of the policies they're advocating and what it actually would look like to build a permanent pro-family majority. Because if you got the socially conservative voters that are racial minorities to vote with the socially conservative voters who are white, the, the party of elite progressivism, elite white progressivism would lose, lose every election from now until they figured out that they were on the wrong side of the country. It's just a fact. It's just, it's, it's just the numbers. But the reality is that throwing stones at evangelicals and saying you're all a bunch of racists is not actually the best way to persuade them. Right? The best way to persuade them is to break the issue down, disaggregate legal and illegal immigration, and fix the illegal immigration issue. And then you can probably get them to pivot to a position that's going to be more in line with not only where social conservatives need to go, but actually the national interest, right? If you look at the entitlement crisis that's coming, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse because as, the, as more of the baby boomers re retire and go over 65, our worker to retiree ratio is going to go in a bad direction. And that's going to make our big three entitlements, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, less sustainable, not more. We need immigrants coming into the country to fix that problem. Because even if automation, which is something that's, oh, well, automation is going to increase productivity. Yes, but our tax system is currently based on the income tax. And just realistically, you've got a much, much higher likelihood of bringing new immigrants in who are going to come, start new businesses, be entrepreneurial, and add to the tax base than you do of completely overhauling the internal revenue code. That is probably, probably not going to happen in time to fix this, right? So we need, 
skilled, entrepreneurial families of immigrants who are going to come and have lots of kids. It's, 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 <laughs> there's, there's no demographic downside. If you don't believe me, look at the work of Julian Simon, who's an economist, who's studied both immigration and pop population policy. Simon's underlying point is that humans are the ultimate resource. In the same way that abortion is disastrous, because you, you've got rid of 40 million people who are going to be taxpayers. Right? The assumption underlying abortion policy is, well, they're all going to just end up on welfare. By the way, you hear that same assumption about immigrants. The numbers don't bear that out. The, statistic, the statistics don't bear that out in either case. Okay, so that's the reality. People are the ultimate resource. And you want more of them, not fewer of them. And there's no evidence that population declines good for a country. Right? In fact, uh, you know, currency inflation is a challenge to be managed, and there are some very negative effects with that. But currency deflation means that something's gone really haywire. Population's kind of the same way, right? So high levels of immigration in and of themselves are not bad. Illegal immigration is a different matter. So we need to disaggregate and we need to fix that problem because that opens the door to a more sensible legal immigration policy. So ending the episode here, please remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Not exactly sure when this is airing, but I'm suspecting it's probably going to come out in the middle of a couple of guest host episode or guest episodes that I've been doing. So, you know, please do, if you have some topics that you want us to talk about, you want me to talk about, or you want me to try to find guests or something like that, please you know, leave a comment on one of the posts on our Facebook page, on one of the podcast posts on our page. We're open to doing those topics. And so if, if there's one that you want, you know, leave us a comment. We'll take a look and we'll, we'll see if we can do a podcast on it. Somebody asked me to compare New York and Chicago pizza and I did a podcast on it. So I'm open to it. What, what it might be, whatever it might be. So please remember to read and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off. Mm -hmm.